0: Crosspoint Church's weekly sermon audio from lead pastor Brad Evangelista. For more information about Crosspoint, visit InsideCrosspoint.com. All right, let's pray and ask the Lord to help us. The theme today, I think, of the text is the authority of Jesus. And we as Americans, let's admit it, have a kind of love-hate relationship with Authority. We love it when it's exercised on our behalf. This room is full of young military guys who represent sort of the tip of the spear of the supremacy of American military might, and I think we all revel in that and love it. I mean, we love when authority and strength is exercised on our behalf against bad guys or whatever. But we, as Americans, have a sort of suspicion of authority, too, don't we? I mean, that's kind of the whole reason we're here and not in Europe, because of an overreach of authority of government almost 300 years ago or so, or 1776 or 200 or whatever. Anyway, anyway you get the idea. And I think that's a healthy thing. I mean we, we, we get angry when government and authority overreaches its bounds. But I think we all need to admit, as we're going to work through this text, that that makes us, I think, vulnerable as Americans who have this healthy, sometimes, suspicion of authority. It makes us vulnerable to misunderstand Jesus' authority in our lives. And so this is an important passage for us. Let me pray, and then we'll read. Father, thank you for your kindness to us and giving us your word, allowing us to gather Lord, I pray for these, these people in this room. I, I love them, and I want to serve them well. I pray for my friends in this room who may not yet know Jesus. Lord, would you give them the kind grace and the heart to bow to your authority as their good and gracious and sovereign king? For my friends in this room that are already trusting in Christ, Lord, would you help us understand more what it means to submit to Jesus? in every area of our lives, and would you bring glory to your name today as we look at your word, and I pray that you would do this, not because we're good, but because Jesus alone is good, and I pray it in his name, amen. All right, well, Mark chapter 11, verse 27. Let me read through the end of chapter 11, and then we'll stop. Think about that portion and then move on. Jesus has ridden into Jerusalem on the donkey, cleared out the temple, cursed a fig tree. These next six chapters in Mark are the last week of his life. So two-thirds of the gospel in Mark is about the last week of Jesus' life. And they came again to Jerusalem, verse 27, and as he was walking in the temple, the chief priests and the scribes and the elders came to him, and they said to him, By what authority are you doing these things? Or who gave you this authority to do them? Jesus said to them, I will ask you one question. Answer me. And I will tell you by what authority I do these things. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? Answer me. And they discussed it with one another saying, if we say from heaven, he will say, why then did you not believe him? But shall we say from man? They were afraid of the people, for they all held that John really was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, we do not know. And Jesus said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. So let's just think about this. a couple of things that I want us to notice here is that, first of all, this little group, this little conglomeration of the chief priests and the scribes and the elders came together. Maybe you've heard in the scriptures before this word Sanhedrin. That's what this group was. This group was a, um, a representatives from all of these sort of three ruling religious factions in Israel. And they comprised, representatives from each of these groups, the Sanhedrin, which was sort of like the the final authority for all religious affairs in the life of Israel. They were kind of like the Supreme Court, and they were a sort of liaison to Rome. So remember that Israel at this time is under the captivity of Rome, and so there's sort of limited political power. They had to do what the emperor of Rome told them to do, but as Rome did with most of the territories that they conquered, they gave them pretty much religious freedom. And so the Sanhedrin was kind of like the Supreme Court and the final authority of all religious matters. And they're coming to Jesus. And notice that they're not really coming to Jesus to genuinely question him. Rather, they're coming to confront him. I mean, they ask him, by what authority are you doing these things? And, and what they're referring to, I think, is most, most primarily what he just did to clear out the temple. Was Robert, uh, so ably explained last week, represented this old way of approaching God and they were misappropriating what the temple meant and they were turning it turning it in towards selfish gain and means and, and so Jesus was deconstructing really their system of authority and power and so they weren't genuinely humbly questioning Jesus they were confronting him because Jesus in his teaching and what he was doing was was really threatening their authority and notice also that Jesus is in total control First of all, when people confront Jesus in the scriptures, or whatever, it's just amazing to see his restraint. I mean, he is the creator of the universe, and yet he, like when a couple weeks ago when we read about James and John coming to Jesus, asking for, you know, power and prestige, you know, Jesus, we want you to do whatever we ask of you. I mean, and Jesus, in an incredible act of restraint, doesn't just smack them. I mean, come on. He doesn't just, I mean, he could just slap them. He just says, okay, boys, well, tell me what it is you want me to do for you, and then teaches them and redirects their hearts. And here again, he says, "He says, well, I'm going to ask you a question. Now, you know you're in charge when you turn the tables and you're so confident in what you're about to say that you, you answer a question with a question, right? I mean, that, that'll get you in a fight unless you're Jesus. When you answer a question with a question, that's, that's like a Jedi mind trick, you know? And he... And notice the genius of what he does. He brings up John the Baptist, his cousin, who was beheaded some time ago in the Gospel of Mark that we read about. And he introduces this logical argument from the ministry of John. And this is really, his argument is genius. Because John, in his ministry, and and in fact, uh, Mark mentions it, John and his ministry, he, he put them in a dilemma. He says, well, okay, before I tell you whether my ministry is from God or from man, I'm going to ask you whether you think John's ministry is from God or man. Heaven meaning, obviously, from God or man. And, and, and this is why it was such a brilliant dilemma, is because John's ministry was in large part, it was, it was meant, not in large part, it was to pave the way for Jesus. John preached about Jesus. Remember, he says at the beginning of the Gospels, there's one coming who I'm not worthy to even untie. His sandal, he's the one coming. And then in John 1, he says, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And so John's ministry was preaching about the validity of Jesus coming from heaven, okay? And so... The Sanhedrin knew that, so they knew that if they admitted that John's ministry was from God, then they would have to admit that what John said was valid and what he said was that Jesus is come from heaven. But if they didn't admit that John had come from God, they ran the risk of upsetting the people, the masses... Because the masses believed that John truly was a prophet. So Jesus kind of backed them into a corner and presented them sort of with a catch-22 situation, a no-win situation. If they said that John was from heaven, then they had to acknowledge that his message was that Jesus was from heaven, which they didn't want to do. And if they said, no, he's from man, then they had to run the risk of upsetting the people and losing the support of the people. And so, kind of, can you imagine? It's kind of like this ultra-confident, you know, Jesus. And then he totally just runs a mind trick on the Sanhedrin. And then they kind of huddle back up. Oh, let me get back with you. Just one second. <laughs> um, we don't know. Because <laughs> they couldn't answer either way. And you can just imagine, like, the crickets, you know, chirping in the background. Like, yeah, that's right. Pregnant pause. Boom. Jesus just lowered it on. And notice, though, that the real objection to Jesus isn't merely an intellectual argument. There's a heart issue going on here with the Sanhedrin. And there's a heart issue going on with us, and we'll see this later on. That really the Sanhedrin, in a sense, represent all of us. We rebel against God's utter and good authority. That's the story of mankind before we come to Jesus. Not because we have some primarily intellectual objection. Although apologetics and all of that are a wonderful thing for us to engage in as a church. But ultimately, it's not a factual argument. It's a heart issue for the Sanhedrin and for us rejecting Jesus, Jesus' authority. And so then Jesus teaches this parable, which is the beginning of chapter 12, that really is displaying the rejection of his authority by these religious leaders, the Sanhedrin. So what he's about to do now, even though it's the beginning of a new chapter, is a sort of display of their rejection of his authority. So let me read chapter 12, verse 1. And he began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard and put a fence around it, and dug a pit for the winepress and built a tower, and leased it to tenants and went into another country when the season came he sent a servant to the tenants to get from them some of the fruit of the vineyard and they took him and beat him and sent him away empty-handed again he sent to them another servant and they struck him on the head and treated him shamefully and he sent another and him they killed and so with many others some they beat And some they killed. Verse 6. He had still one other, a beloved son. Finally he sent him to them, saying, They will respect my son. But those tenants said to one another, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. And they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. What will the owner of the vineyard do? Okay, so let's look at this parable. There's not much ambiguity here. Clearly, Jesus is speaking this parable against these religious leaders, the Sanhedrin. In fact, it says that very thing in verse 12. They perceived it, that he had told this parable against him. And that's one thing that they were right about. Jesus was speaking this parable against him. And unlike other parables, this is interesting, unlike other parables where sometimes a group of people, sometimes the disciples will come afterwards and say, ah, Jesus, What did you mean by that? This is one instance where nobody came back to Jesus and asked him what he meant by this parable because it was so clear. So what is Jesus saying in this parable? A couple things to help us understand. First of all, clearly the vineyard for these first century listeners, for this crowd that Jesus was speaking this parable to, clearly they would have identified the vineyard as being Israel, as God's people in the Old Testament. So let me just read, don't flip there, but let me just read from Isaiah. And there's many images In the Old Testament, they speak of Israel, God's chosen people in the Old Testament, as a vineyard. he, he, He speaks of them as his vineyard. Isaiah 5, verse 1. Let me sing for my beloved my love song concerning his vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it and cleared it of stones and planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it, and hewed out a wine vat in it, and he looked for it to yield grapes, but it yielded wild grapes. And so, so right there, Jesus, it's almost word for word when he speaks about this, this landowner, clearly signifying God, who has made a vineyard for himself, and then he's given uh, charge of taking care of this vineyard to these tenants who clearly represent these religious leaders of Israel, these Sanhedrins, and so Jesus is saying that the vineyard represents God's people, Israel. And also, I want us to notice that just as the owner fences off his vineyard, there's a picture here that God also fences off His His people in the Old Testament. He fences us off with with His law, with with circumcision, and in the New Testament, He fences His people off with with the gospel, with Jesus, and with the church through through baptism and the Lord's Supper. And so there's this beautiful picture of, of God, the owner of the vineyard, delineating who his people are. So in one sense, all people are, are the created children of God, but everybody isn't part of the family of God just because they're a child or a part of his creation. God has fenced off his people with, in the Old Testament, his word and his law and circumcision which was all pointing towards the New Testament where God separates a people through his son Jesus and their repentance and faith in him. And God does that even today. And then we see also that just as the owner expected fruit from his vineyard, remember we just read in Mark 12 that that the owner sent this, this servant to go collect some fruit from this tenant that was taking care of his people. Likewise, God expects His people to bear fruit. I think, in fact, that's what Robert laid out so well last week about this this fruit, this fig tree that was fruitless and this temple activity that was missing the point and fruitless. Likewise, again, we see it here that God expects His people to bear fruit in some manner. I think this is important for us to just think about for just a second. I, I am not saying that that Christians are made right with God by their works or by what we do. That's not the gospel. In fact, that's the opposite of the gospel. There's nothing that we can do that can save ourselves. We're made right because of Jesus' work, not our own. But when we have truly received Jesus' work, when there is a root of saving faith in our life, there will be some measure of fruit of our salvation. In fact, that's what we read months ago in Mark chapter 4 where the parable of the sower, Jesus says that when the seed of the gospel hits the good soil and it takes root, it will bear fruit, 30-fold, 60-fold, 100-fold. In other words, there's varying levels of fruit in different Christians' lives. Some of us, it's maybe, maybe very small, and others, they do great things for the Lord. But to be a Christian is to some degree to bear fruit fruit for God, In fact, Jesus says that very thing in John 15, verse 8. Let me read this. By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. So bearing fruit is proof that we are some disciples. So, so that's kind of religious language that maybe we don't quite grab onto. So what does it mean for a Christian? What, is, what does that practically mean for a Christian to bear fruit? Well, I think it means to serve God in some identifiable way, that you you know that you are loving God more than this world. And I think it, it shows itself in several ways in our life. Certainly Christians still struggle with sin, but if we are truly Christians, we should have a desire to fight sin. And to some degree, even though the Christian life sometimes is taking one step forward to take two, or one step backward to take two forward, to some degree we should expect to see some progress in our ability to fight sin, some progress in our sanctification. That's that's part of what bearing fruit is. It's also, a fruit is a love of God and a desire to know His Word, a desire for the things of God and a desire to love God and His mission and His people and people that don't know Jesus. So so here's here's, here's just kind of a... A diagnostic question. And this is wildly unpopular in a region where a lot of people grow up having a very thin association with Christianity, but assume they're Christians just because their grandma played the organ at some church or their great uncle was a deacon somewhere. This is one of the great tactics of Satan in the Bible Belt is to cause a whole bunch of people to think they're okay with Jesus when they're not. And so, here's a question. To be a Christian is to bear fruit. So are are you, to some degree, listen, this is the quote. William Arnaud, that 18th century uh, preacher in England, says that the difference between a Christian and a non-Christian is not that one has sin and the other does not, but that the Christian is taking God's side against their dreaded sin and fighting it, Whereas the non-Christian is taking sin side against a dreaded God and resisting God. The issue is, is that a lot of people that are taking sin side against God have been duped into thinking that they're okay with God by a weak culture and weak churches that don't preach the gospel. And so are you taking God's side against your sin And even if it's in a meager sense, bearing the fruit of more love for God and His people than for this world. If you're not, friends, one of the kindest things that I can say to you is that you may not be a Christian. And I love you enough to get your angry email. I love you enough because I care more about your soul than filling, the pastors of this church care more about your soul than filling this place up with numbers and saying that success is a church of a thousand people, half of whom aren't truly converted, but we are paving the way to damnation for them because we're patting them on the back, telling them that they're okay. When they're not, friends, that is spiritual malpractice. That is not the work of the gospel. That's the work of Satan. And so one of the things that we always want to do here is, are are we in Christ? And and again, this isn't to cause a sort of works-based righteousness in us. It is for us to examine our hearts. Now, I think the vast majority of you are trusting in Christ. But I always want to press on those that may be deceived and think that they are, but aren't. And Jesus is pressing on. He's pressing on these Sanhedrin. He's pressing on this fruitless vineyard. And maybe the Holy Spirit is pressing on you as well. And if He is, friends, don't let that cause you to run into, oh, I need to read my Bible more. Oh, I need to come to church more. I need to do this or this or this or that. No, no, no. It's not a checklist. It's Christ. We're saved not because we're having a relatively good week of Bible reading. We're saved because we look and gaze at Jesus. And what happens is when we look and gaze at Jesus, God gives us the gifts of faith and repentance. And he gives us the heart. He makes dead hearts alive. And they look at Jesus. They are made alive by Jesus. And then in ever-increasing progress, they become more and more like Jesus for the rest of their life. He makes a dead heart alive. And then he causes that dead heart to grow. And we'll talk about how he does that. So, friends, I'm not asking you to run off and doubt where you are. I'm asking you, if the Holy Spirit is pressing on you right now, look to Jesus, not to yourself. So, the main point of this parable, I think, friends, is that Jesus is giving a picture of Israel and their leaders rejecting his authority. And Jesus indicts these bad shepherds and tells them that God will take away the vineyard and give it to others. So two truths, very very briefly, that I think this passage teaches us. One is that Jesus, listen, this isn't rocket science. This is, uh, it just very simply comes out of the text. Jesus has all authority in heaven and earth. In fact, that's, what Jesus says at the end of the Gospel of Matthew, the beginning of the Great Commission, Matthew twenty-eight, eighteen: all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. This is a theme throughout Mark. In fact, it's a central theme that Mark has been very careful to build up to this point, that Jesus has authority over all things. We've seen in the beginning chapters of Mark where he was healing masses of people that Jesus has authority over sickness and disease. We see that he has authority over demons and evil spirits. Remember in Mark 5, one of my favorite stories in the whole Bible, where he cures he that man who is out in the, the, the wilderness breaking chains and shackles, and Jesus, with one word, causes that legion of demons to flee. All that, friends, is showing us that Jesus has authority over the spiritual realm. He has authority over storms and weather. He has authority over unbroken donkeys. And He even has authority over fig trees. But most prominently, He has authority to forgive sins. And He even has authority over death itself. Jesus has all authority in heaven and earth. And Mark, this is a clear theme of Mark. In fact, it begins with Jesus as the King who has come. His kingdom has come his kingdom has broken into this world and he reigns and wayne quoted it as he was praying just a moment ago colossians 1 16 for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth visible and invisible whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities all things were created through him and for him so so that includes the republicans and the democrats that includes israel and babylon That includes the Pharaoh and Moses. Do you see that? That includes the President of the United States and the President of North Korea. Do you see that it's all authority, all people, all rulers everywhere are under Jesus' authority. In fact, the authority that they have was given to them by Him. But, and friends, this is a key to understanding the Bible well. So listen, if you've zoned out and you're still worried about maybe rain falling or whatever, tune in on this one because this will be a very helpful key for you to understanding how to read the Bible. A very important thing for you to understand about the Bible is there is this tension all throughout the scriptures. And theologians have phrased it as a sort of already but not yet aspect to the reign of God. So in one sense... Jesus has already come and established his reign. Mark 1.15 The kingdom of God is at hand. Jesus is the king. Where the king is, is the kingdom. So in one sense, all of these things that we read about, about Jesus' rule and authority and providence over all things and all authorities and all rulers and all dictators and all presidents and every life, is true. It is certainly true. Jesus reigns already. But there's this sort of not yet, fully, um, not yet fully realized aspect to his rule. So, so in one sense, Jesus is ruling already, but it has not yet been fully consummated. The rule and reign of his kingdom has not yet been fully consummated. The, the battle has been won, but the victory hasn't been fully realized yet. And when we understand this tension in the scriptures that Jesus is the king and he reigns, but in God's wise providence, he allows sin and evil and evil people to still to some degree, even though they are on chains, work their evil. His rule, although it is reigning, is not yet fully complete and consummated and realized here on this earth. Why is that, friends? Well, I think that in the providence of God, He has deemed this tension between the establishment of his rule and reign from everlasting to everlasting and the full realization of his rule and reign to be the thing that displays the maximum of his his glory. And so we're sort of caught up in this in-between time. In one sense, Ephesians 2, in our own salvation and in our own fight against sin, listen to this. Listen to this young man struggling with lust. Listen to this. Ephesians 2 says that you are already seated with Christ in heavenly places if you're in Christ, right? So Jesus' reign and his perfection has already come to you. But Philippians 2 says in another set sense, it's not yet fully realized because it says that you now, in light of that, need to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Do you see, do you see that in a, in a personal sense? Jesus has already seated you with him in heavenly places, but yet... You still have to work that out. And I see, I see this pictured beautifully in one verse in the Bible. Hebrews 12, verse 14. When, I struggle, when my struggle against sin is, is, is taking some shots to the, to the solar plexus, this is the verse that I go to. Listen to this. Hebrews 10, verse 14. And this pictures the already not yet aspect of Jesus' reign in our lives. It says, and this would be completely grammatically incorrect and not make any sense unless it was in the Bible. For by a single offering, meaning Jesus' work on the cross, his death, his burial, and his resurrection, for by a single offering, he has perfected, past tense, you're already perfect, for all time, sealed, those who are being, present tense, sanctified. You get the tension? It's right there. You're already perfected, but you're not yet fully sanctified. Uh, <laughs> yes. And do you see understanding that tension is really helpful in interpreting not only your own life, but the world? Do you see that? Give me a few north-souths. Just just indulge me. Praise God. So he has friends, authority over every aspect of our lives. And this is so important, and it's so hard to see, and this is why we need to encourage each other. He always exercises his authority towards his people, meaning those that are trusting in Jesus. He always exercises his authority towards his people for their good and eternal joy. You see, Jesus is not like the broken authority of this world. He's not like the authority that we need to be suspicious of. He's always good. And if He's listening in on your cell phone conversation, it's for your good. Do, do you see this? And do you see how we're suspicious of authority and we think that somehow Jesus is against us? But friends, if you're in Christ, even if He is chastening you, even if He is making your, the taste in your mouth for sin bitter, He is doing it for your good good and eternal joy. Do you see that? He's a lion and a lamb. He's a fierce, ferocious warrior king and he's a gentle shepherd, friends. He has an ability to exercise his authority like no other authority. He always exercises it towards his people for their good and eternal joy. And then secondly, the second truth, much quicker, but yet, and we see this, with the Sanhedrins, and we see it in our own lives, we are all naturally hostile to Jesus' authority. We're born that way. That's the testimony of Scripture. Romans 3, none is righteous. No, not one. No one does good. No, not even one. Romans 8, verse 7, for the mind that is set on the flesh, and that's Paul's phraseology for people who are not yet in Christ. For the mind that is set on the flesh, in other words, a person who's not a Christian, is hostile to God. For it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. And Ephesians 2.3 says that we, by nature, are children of wrath, friends. We naturally are hostile to Jesus' authority. And so that may cause you a little bit of, like, oh my gosh, what's our hope Well, friends, that's the good news of the gospel, is that Jesus melts and saves hostile hearts. You see, the good news of the gospel is not your heart is hard and inclined against Jesus' authority, so run out of here and work hard. That's not the gospel. The gospel is such good news is that when God moves on a human heart to save it, he causes it to be alive. That's Ephesians 2, 4 and 5, that he makes us alive in Christ. He takes our hostile, dead, rebellious hearts and he makes it alive and he fills it with love and we look to Jesus and even if it's meager, even if it's still got a lot of sin, in it, it looks to Jesus and it becomes alive. And it starts to submit to Jesus in this already not yet sort of tension for the rest of its life. So a few applications and we're done. How does this authority of Jesus work out practically in our lives? Okay, so we've got this grand idea of Jesus is completely uh, authoritative over all things, rulers individual lives. Friends, he's sovereign over two sub-atomic particles colliding together on the far edges of an infinite space. There's not a bird that falls to the ground. There's not a hair on your head that he's not sovereign over. But How does that actually work out in our lives? Three thoughts, not exclusive. One, his authority works out in our lives through the Bible, through the scriptures. Folks, it's just as simple. The vast majority of American Christians are completely biblically illiterate because we'd rather be entertained, we'd rather watch silly reality shows, we'd rather consume recreation and just culture. We love culture more than we do God. God in many instances and so we, we must know the Bible men I'm speaking to you primarily because as the men go so the church goes as the men go so the city goes as the men go so the nation goes men, we, we've got to be men that know our Bibles do not be the guy that doesn't know anything about your Bible bring it to church lay it open on your lap read it to yourself read it to your family If you don't know your Bible, and if the only time you occasionally open it up is at some prayer breakfast or maybe Sunday morning at church, you will be so vulnerable to the lies of this culture that you will get chewed up and spit out. This is what the scriptures say about the Word of God and its power in our lives. Psalm 19, verse 11, I've stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. James 1, verse 21, Put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word of God which is able to save your souls. Friends, we cannot write ourselves out of scripture. Don't be the type of person that always sees yourself as the exception to the rule. We deceive ourselves by telling ourselves that God understands my situation even though the word directly speaks against it. We've got to be people that take in the Bible. Here's a question. This is worthy of its own message or series, but do you have a plan to take in God's Word? I mean, come on. I don't have time to break this down, but we know how to figure things out, right? I mean, come on. We, 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 can, we can build our lives about planning vacations and college football games and recreation and fitness and how to decorate our homes and, and, and all this stuff. We can plan our lives around all of this stuff, which I'm not saying it is sinful, but when it overtakes and eclipses our relationship with Christ, it becomes an idol that draws us away from Him. My point is, friends, we know how to make things happen in our lives that we really want to make happen. Do you have a plan for taking in God's word in your life. And and maybe the plan is you getting with a Christian in this room that you know is doing that to some degree more faithfully than you are, and before you leave this room today, you grab him and you say, Brother, I need to take you to lunch, and I need you to unpack your wisdom on how I read the Bible. There's pastors here that would love to do that and just help you. I overheard one of our pastors the other day in the room next to my office sitting down with a young sister in this church just giving her a fountain of practical wisdom on how to engage the Bible and understand it and she was eating it up and her soul will be all the better for it, friends. That's there for you. Take it in. Do you have a plan? Do you have a plan? Otherwise, friends, the enemy will shred you. He will shred you through the Bible. Secondly, through the church. And by that I mean not just a nebulous, ambiguous idea of the church, but through life in the local church. We see again in the New Testament, again and again, this picture of the body of Christ helping each other live for Christ. In a negative sense, we see it in 1 Corinthians 5 where this man is engaged in an immoral relationship with his father's wife. And Paul tells the church to put this man out of the church because his sin. And he says literally, hand him over to Satan, meaning the world. Let this, put him out, excommunicate this guy. Why? Because God hates sinners? And the church is not a place for sinners? No, but because this man is unrepentant in his sin and put this man out of the church so that he might see his error and come back and repent. Do you realize that God has given us a built-in means by which to help each other, to be accountable to each other, to be close enough to know each other's lives and be able to have broken-hearted, bold conversations like, bro, where you been? What's going on in your life? Who are you hanging with? What are you doing? God has given the local church the people in this room. And here's the difference between life in the local church and just friends with other Christians that may are in the community. That's wonderful. I commend that. I commend. Somebody have a microphone for me to finish this up? Keep popping. Somebody give me a microphone. There it is right here. Thank you, Kwame. I commend friendships with other Christians. But God has given you relationships in the local church to put a sort of gracious pressure on you. Because here's what happens in the local church. We don't get to pick everybody that we go to church with. And so there's somebody down the aisle from you right now that might rub you the wrong way. And God intends that to be sandpaper for your soul to conform you to the image of Christ. And not just hang out with all the people that look like you and live like you. And God gives us the local church... To rub off the rough edges of our soul and submit ourselves to the authority of a group of people who have a say in our lives. And friends, you cannot do that if you are on the edge of the church and if nobody really knows who you are. And friends, this is such a plague in our culture. You can't do that if you just move from church to church every three or four years because you don't like this or that or whatever. You can't, you're short circuiting. God sanctified means, and finally, i finished with this. I know I've gone long, and I thank you for your patience. But finally, God gives us also leaders in the local church to care for and watch over our souls. friends, know my heart in this. These scriptures that I'm about to read, it's not me saying, oh, you need to submit to the pastors and elders of Cross Point, and, you know, we need parking spots with pastor on it or you know, I need a group of guys that follow me around that, that junk is sick. I, I've seen church cultures where that, that's ridiculous the, the pastors and elders of the church should be the humblest, most servant oriented cats in the crew right? We, we, should be, we should be the ones tripping over ourselves to serve but he gives us a responsibility, listen to Hebrews 13 verse 17 obey your leaders and submit to them For they are keeping watch over your souls as those who have to give an account. That's why, friends, that's why in James it says not many of you should desire to be teachers. It's a stricter judgment. Because someday I'm going to stand before Jesus. And I'm not just going to have to give an account of my own life. I'm going to have to give an account along with all of these other pastors and elders and shepherds. How we led you. And friends, that is a sobering thought. There are people that care for your soul. So if you become a member of this church, and you, know, you, you can know that pastors and elders are weekly gathering around the membership of this church to pray specifically for you. Listen to this verse from Acts 20. Paul, at the end of his ministry, is speaking to the Ephesian elders in verse 28. And he says, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock. In which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert. Remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance amongst all those who are being sanctified. Paul says that there's wolves out there. And friends, there are wolves in our culture today. And God has given leaders to our church to beat back wolves that want to destroy the souls of God's sheep. So God has given us leaders. And sometimes those leaders are wrong. And that's why this church is not governed finally by the elders, but by the congregation. That's why it's important for you, if this is your home church, to be here, to be a member, to come to our meetings, to affirm or deny good elders, and to be part of life together in this way that the New Testament calls it. It calls us to live out the authority of Jesus. So I conclude with this two questions friends maybe you're not a Christian are you rejecting Jesus' authority he has all authority in your life and he will always exercise it for your good are you rejecting it turn from that If you're realizing it right now I think that's evidence that God is giving you a heart to believe trust in Jesus even now second question is maybe you have submitted to Jesus's authority in a grand sense but you are rejecting the means in other words his bible his church his leaders shepherds that he's given to care for your soul you are rejecting and neglecting those means by which he works out his authority in your life? Do you need to submit to Jesus' authority in a deeper and more practical biblical way? Thanks for your patience, friends. I know it's been a long Sunday. Let's ask the Lord to help us respond to these things. Fathers, we come now to close our time together. And to respond to your word. I pray that you'd give us a kind grace that we would not react to Jesus' authority like a typical American, but that we would bow our heart to the King of Kings who is good and gracious and who is a ferocious king who fights for us and is a gentle shepherd who nurtures us. Father, if there is anyone in this room who has not yet submitted their heart to Jesus, I'm not asking that person to try better or do better or act better. I'm asking them to give up their rebellion. And I'm asking you, Lord, to give them a heart to believe, to submit, to trust in Jesus. Lord, would you do that? Lord, for the rest of us in this room who have already done that in a saving sense, we've trusted in Christ. But yet, because we're, we're still in this world and we're still battling sin and the flesh the world and the enemy we need we need to be reminded that you've given us means you've given us your word you've you've given us a built-in community in the local church yes you've connected us with all Christians everywhere but but in a more practical way you've given us the people in this room to particularly love to particularly submit our lives to and if we're rejecting that god would you Would you humble us? Lord, I thank you for the other pastors and elders that you've given as an authority in my life. They are such a grace to me. And I thank you for this congregation who I am accountable to. Lord, I need it. Lord, would you work Jesus' authority into the lives of your people in a deeper, deeper way? so that we would be fruitful people, a fruitful vineyard that glorifies your name. Lord, I pray that you do this for your glory and for the joy of your people. In Jesus' name, amen.